Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster, than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive in today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide, The Seven Habits of Highly Transformative Leaders at chriscolbert.com. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Insert Human. And I think I always start every show with something like, I'm so thrilled to have this person on my show, which is always true. It's never not true. But let me just say today, I'm really thrilled to have this person on the show as a gentleman by the name of Stephen Titus Smith, otherwise known as Steve, who I met virtually a couple of months ago, maybe three months ago, four months ago, longer. Yeah, it was about three or four Um, months ago. Yeah. I think at one point, one of us said, we're like uh, my brother from another mother kind of dynamic. Mm -hmm. I mean, immediately our connection was pretty profound. Steve is, is, I should warn you, is much smarter than me much better read, more thoughtful, more creative. However, I think we share the same interest and passion for understanding humans generally and the behavior of humans particularly. Uh, And so we just have, we've had some wonderful riffs about lots of different things based on that shared passion and shared interest. He's an author. He, uh, he and a, who's the, uh, your co-author on your both books, right? Dave. Yeah. Dave Markham. Dave Markham. Yeah. They wrote, they wrote a book several years ago called Egonomics, which was hugely successful. And they have just finished a book called I Am Gravity, which likely will publish in, in the months ahead, trying to sort out which publisher gets the, uh, gets the golden rights. So, so Steve is an author. He's a researcher. He's a thinker. He's an innovator. He's a, my term, not his. He's a cultural decoder and recoder. He's the archetype of what it means to be a polymath, if you know that term. And he's also the co-founder of a, of a business called Gravity, which I actually want to start by just having you, Steve, give us a little bit of your story, your sort of professional trajectory that both got you to where you are in terms of the work that you do and also the focus of, of your work 
with I am gravity. So give us, give us just a little bit of, of your story, if you would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first of all, the only thing that you completely lied about, Chris, is that I'm smarter than you. No, no, no. You the, are. Man. This is, man, it's like an honor to be on the podcast. You are like a brother. It was from the very first time we talked, I got better as a human being. Well, I got smarter. And that's, that's the truth. Uh, this was the way I got where I am isn't unlike most people. It was serendipitous. We, about 18 years ago, we were teaching this group thinking process, not group think, but getting groups to think creatively and critically with a method. And it took about a day and a half to get through the process and tons of practice and application to their, you know, whatever strategy they were working on or what wicked problem they were trying to figure out and how are they were going to hold this in their mind as a kind of a mentality, a way of thinking. And we did about, I don't know, probably about two thirds of the way into this day and a half, we would do 15 minutes on ego and how ego screws everything up. And we would do these course of, we would do these course evaluations and we'd bring them back from when we were on the road or doing a keynote or whatever it was. And people would, you know, write, I love this. I hated that. You know, here's what I thought about it. And almost always the highest rated part of the entire thing was the 15 minutes on ego. And we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We spent a total of about 12 working hours together and you highlighted 15 minutes as the best part. So that got, not only got my attention, it was my favorite part to teach anyway. I love method. I was kind of born and raised on method. I'm a methodological thinker, but it was the more complex things about being human that fascinated me. And funny enough, my degrees were in psychology and organizational behavior and management, but I, I somehow got into method. And so I went back to my roots and, you know, 15 minutes turned into 30, turned into an hour. Turned into we finally got four hours of solid content and we, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what turned into economics because we didn't, we didn't want to say anything that other people had said. And I know that's, that's a flaw that I have for sure, but it's like, if somebody's written it, then let's just refer people to them, you know, let go learn right. from them. Right. So we said, if we don't have anything new to say, let's not say it. So 15 minutes turned into two hours, eventually turned into four hours. And I still remember we went to Atlanta and at the time we called it the ego diet and we invited a bunch of big companies like Cox communications and some hotels and yeah. other stuff. And we taught it and we sold it and they were more excited about the four hours than anything we'd done before. And what, if, if I may ask, what was, yeah. the, what was the, the punchline of what, of that four hour thing or, or what was the, what was the appeal and what was the consequence of these organizations engaging around that, that. Yeah, topic? it was the early stages it was way more focused on behaviors than beliefs, which is kind of the opposite of what gravity is now because behaviors are like the building blocks of a culture, but mentality is the architect of the building blocks. So I am gravity is much more about the mentality that drives behavior that drives culture. But okay, when you say, I, I, let me just stop you there. Yeah. I want the audience to just sit with that. Whoever out there is listening, just sit with what Steve just said. Behavior Behaviors are the building blocks of culture and mentality is the architect of behavior. Did I get that right? 
and mentality is the architect of the building block of the building block. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. 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 So in your own, in your own being, that's what's going on there, people. <laughs> yeah. Mentality is driving what you do and you can, you know, you can reverse it. You know, you could say, I have no belief about anything at all and try something. And because of you behaved your way into it, you go, I now believe that because I tried it. But most of the time we operate based on the mental operating system that we have. And so, you know, what we end up doing with gravity is coding and recoding what people are thinking. And we try to you know, give, invite everybody in to take a, you know, a trip inside their head and what's going on there. And we don't mean in some like kind of amateurish psychological way, like, well, in the womb, you moved right, a lot. Right. And that meant it's more just about where did you derive these beliefs? about curiosity or humility or bravery or ingenuity or equality. And what are they, what are they causing you to do? But if we go back just for a second, mm -hmm. Chris, to your question, you said, what was the kind of the hinge point of that, of economics, right? Yeah, what were people right. so interested in? It was the really the early beginning of something that we now call the confidence continuum. And most people think about confidence and still do. They did, you know, almost 20 years ago as this left to right, I'm always trying to build more confidence. And we said, no, 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 it actually doesn't work like that based on our study. It's more like a, an equilibrium where the center is the strongest point, not, not to the right. Hmm. And that you can have too much or too little confidence. And that's, that's not revelatory to anybody. What is revelatory though, is most of us are not narcissists and we're not completely devoid of, of confidence. What happens is when we move just off center, what happens behaviorally is we move from something that we call a strength or a core trait to a counterfeit. It's hmm. something that looks almost like the original behavior in its purest, greatest form, but to us and to us, it feels the same, but to everyone else, it feels very different. And that's why you get someone who's, let's say they're naturally good at being honest, you know, candid. But with a little too much confidence, they become blunt and they mm. go a little bit over the top and they can't see it because to them, it's still the core trait. I'm Wait, have you been talking person. to my wife? Yes. We spent about two hours. You know, what's, what's really cool about this, Chris, is it's an intervention. Yeah, this is this is the only podcast that is and will be an intervention. <laughs> So, so, so that's how, so then that became fascinating to us. And, and that's what they were so excited about is we were pinpointing things in their culture that they were living with like Microsoft. They became one of our clients for about nine years and they thought, you know, we're, we're honest and we're, um, we're direct with our clients in the market and we're kind of ingenious. We're smart. And we'd like, well, actually you're blunt and idealistic with people and you're, you come across as a little bit arrogant, not confident. And we listed these things and we went out and interviewed their clients and their clients are like, yeah, that's what we get mostly from Microsoft. And wow. that's why you've seen such a shift, not just because of our content, although Satya Nadella did go through the course we taught. Yeah, I read that. You've seen a major cultural shift at Microsoft once he took over for Steve Ballmer. Yeah. Because Steve and Satya are not, the same kind of human beings. And if I had to choose one to lead a company or a country, it would be Satya. And you know, what's wild about that declaration is I am not a Microsoft follower. I am not, I don't read about Microsoft. You know, it's, it's not even, 
it's on the periphery of my radar. And I would have, I would have stated the exact same thing that you said that they have seen a profound shift in the culture and the way of that organization. So I, even as a sort of tertiary observer, I completely agree with what you just said. You know, back then in the pockets where we would work, when you had Balmer at the top, he's a over the top bombastic competitor, hyper competitive, which is the counterfeit of being a driven person, being ambitious, right? You get mm -hmm. hyper competitive. Mm -hmm. And so Steve was constantly wanting to kick every competitor's. Right. Right. Everybody. And so nothing, nobody was going to have anything that Microsoft didn't have. So Microsoft did iTunes and the iPod. And so what, what did Microsoft do? The Zoom, right? Zoom. We'll do, we'll Zoom. And everything was a quick reaction. And I would say to these people, you know, and this is, by the way, Chris, this is the height of the commercials where you had, hi, I'm a PC and I'm a Mac. Mm -hmm. Remember those two guys? Mm -hmm. And the, you know, the Mac always looked cooler. And I said, you guys so want to be cool. Why can't you just be smart? What's the problem with that? You were born smart. Your culture is smart. Just be smart. And, and I'm not saying we, I don't know what influence we had on this, but to be sure, Sacha came in and said, yeah, we're not cool, but we like being smart. Let's just go be smart. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay. why they're kind of cool now. And that's why yeah. they're doing better than they've ever done, especially with the corporate world is corporate world likes smart stuff and individuals like cool stuff and they found their way. So were you able, are you able, were you able to give organizations tools to know when you're off that equilibrium center that when, when you're in that counterfeit zone or how does that, cause I mean, it definitely may, I mean, it actually really painfully resonates with me about my own behavior, frankly, but how do, how do you help organizations or individuals within organizations kind of do a better job of seeing it or reacting to it or avoiding yeah. it? Or <clears throat> That's the whole point of the, the course that we teach and the book. So let's walk through, let's just take one, if that's okay, Chris, let's sure. just take one of the yeah. core traits. There's one of 13 core traits and they're, they're kind of parceled out and collected together in a way to do three separate things in the book, you know, there's six traits that have to be exactly on center for you to be innovative and to have kind of a break, be a breakthrough person, a breakthrough culture. And then part two is on inspiration. What are the core traits at the center of who you are that have to be on center on the equilibrium to be inspiring? And the last one is the truth. What core traits do you need to be, to have a really high appetite for the truth? But let's just take one for that sits inside part two of the way we work with people and how in, we inspire them and how inspired we are, which is humility. And humility kind of was reserved for more spiritual discussions up until, oh, really until good to great when Jim Collins wrote good to great. Mm -hmm. and, and he said, look, these leaders have two core characteristics that separate them from every other characteristic was kind of the same as all our comparison companies, but these two. And one was fierce professional resolve. And the second was extreme personal humility. And Jim said, we didn't really have time to study it. We just want to let you know we found it. And the way they described it was kind of like, well, if you're shy and awkward, you're humble. Hmm. And Dave and I were like, nah, 
Not true. You can find people, it has nothing to do with personality type. You can have someone who's an extreme extrovert or introvert or an ambivert, doesn't matter. The characteristics of humility aren't personality specific. So let's just go through, we'll just take humility as kind of the work that we've done and we'll do a really quick art. Do you have it or do you not? Is it at your core or not? And how would you know you're kind of off center, kind of to the left? Great. Great. So, and we'll just go through a few behaviors, obviously not a ton, but behavior from a person with humility First of all, they're honest about their strengths and their weaknesses. They don't see it as a, a weakness to be transparent about it because they know no one's perfect, including themselves. Mm-hmm. And so they're not afraid to, and they're, and they're far more concerned with what is right than who's right. So they don't, they don't get their confidence from applause or being right. And they're not afraid to step into or out of the spotlight at any given time. Now, some of this is correcting past definitions of humility that are completely wrong. And we'll get to those in the counterfeits, which is some people are surprised. Wait, you said step into the spotlight. Yeah, because a person with humility or a humble person is equally willing to step in the spotlight and take control or step back and let someone else take control. But it's Mm -hmm. by their relevance and their merit, not because they have a title. They don't care. It's about the best idea winning, not who wins. Right. right. So they're not, they're unintimidated. They appreciate praising criticism, but they don't let it, you know, warp their sense, you know, their sense of self-worth and they don't overvalue social recognition, which by the way, you can see a lot in the rise of social media, that humility would be a phenomenal thing to install into the mentality of every person on the planet. (laughs) Right. It's, it's like if you could just get some curiosity and humility oh and that God. was it into the mentality that exists in the social media world. There's a quick um, Sean Parker, who was one of the founders of Facebook, I guess, early on. And uh, there's a quote from him where he said, you know, we realized that we had a multi-billion dollar business when the entire we realized the entire platform was about validation. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, God. Uh, yeah. Right. I think he said another part. Maybe it was the book you're working on, but. I also heard Sean say, and we figured out what they crave, you know, what they're addicted to. Right. right. And so we play to it. So, so here's, so now let's go to mentality. I mean, those are the observe, a quick cut at the observable behaviors. And that's what you're going to notice first when you try to, when you get, when you start to kind of like try to decode what's going on in a company, you've got to start with what you're observing because that's the culture cultures. And I've heard you say this before too, Chris, that, Culture is nothing more than the collective behaviors of everybody doing stuff. Right. Right. It doesn't matter. You could say, well, our culture is what we have on the wall. Now that's your mission. That's your values. Right. But I'm going to watch what you do. It's like, so, so here are some core beliefs of a person who holds humility on center. I'm brilliant and I'm not. Hmm. Everyone is accomplished and unfinished. And I'm just reading, this is part from the book. So I'm just going to read through these. Everyone is accomplished and unfinished, talented and average, extraordinary and ordinary. They matter or matters and is irrelevant, right and wrong, enlightened and illiterate. So there's the genius of the end. Mm. And I was having this discussion with one of my sons just yesterday. I was saying, you live in the, you're living in the world of ore. 
and there's mm. a lot of liberation in the end. Yeah. You're, yes, you're you're dumb at times. Yeah, so am I. And you're brilliant. You're both. Yeah. You don't have to be one. So we'll go through just a couple others quickly. Humility is not the architect of weak personalities. It's the engineer of stronger ones. Humility wipes away the pressure of pretense and the insecurity from imperfections because ego, as everyone knows, it's exhausting because we're fighting to project and protect an artificial, unsustainable image. And that's, and that's one of the things that, Chris, honestly, that I, I loved about you when we met, but I loved about you before we even talked. And uh, I'll, I mean, I know you didn't ask me to come on the podcast so I can see how great you are, but I watched, you were doing a keynote for a climate conference. And I think I've told you this before, but I don't think your listeners, maybe they don't know, or don't know this about you, but you were talking and you'd given all these, you know, great observations about the interconnectedness of behavior and climate and where we are. And you got to this one point and you said, and I still could hear you saying it in the way you said it. You said, so what do we do? What do we do? And then you said, I don't know, but I have some theories. So let's talk about some theories. That's intellectual humility. I don't know exactly what we do. I don't. I have some ideas. And I'm not just throwing these out happenstance. Like, I don't know. I have no idea what to do. Let me go top of mind. That's when you go, who can't do that? Right. But you've had some, you have some well-reasoned, deeply thought theories. And right. that's that's when you'd go, there's intellectual humility. Well, thank you. I appreciate so that. there's a couple others, pure confidence. And these are beliefs that we hold deeply. And by the way, that's that's one of the ways that we measure gravity is by the intensity of those beliefs. Like when you ran Harvard Innovation Lab, I'm assuming that not everybody walks in the door with an equal amount of curiosity. No, no, they did not. Yeah. And so what is it? That, yeah. How do you get the right intensity on curiosity and what does it need to combine with? But we'll come back to that kind of mm -hmm. arrive there. Mm -hmm. Pure confidence isn't voted into existence. It is what you're left with after everything else. Your degrees, awards, portfolios, titles, likes, retweets, and resumes are stripped away. Mm. Well, too. Taking your eye off your own finish line and racing for something greater than you doesn't jeopardize winning. Continuous applause is not the cause of unwavering self-assurance. So that's where we would attack Sean Parker and Facebook and what they try to do. And then one thing that kind of surprises people is handing over hard-earned credit to someone else or fading into the background is an act of underconfidence, not humility. Humility <laughs> is not about downplaying or blending in our strengths and someone else's time in the spotlight doesn't steal ours and, you don't, and yours doesn't crowd out anybody else. But here's what happens. Now, here's the counterfeit part. Those are the core beliefs that we'd want, we would want to intensify in the mind of the people who are going through our course or reading the book, but also in the culture. But here's when you move just off center, usually to the left with humility, now counterfeits come into play and the person cannot see them. They're observable by other people, but they feel, as the word counterfeit suggests, they feel so alike to the person, they keep doing it blindly. Hey, Steve, avoid, before you go, yeah, yeah. before you get into yeah. the kind of, I just want to ask yeah. a very quick clarifying question. Yeah. And I don't want to put words in your brain. So just tell me I'm all wrong. 
are beliefs choices? They are once you're aware of them. Okay. Okay. That's but not point. until they're this kind of like an unseen operating system that drives what you do and you're not sure why. Yeah, I love that analogy. I think it's just important that people, because I think the quick sort of reaction to the word belief is that's just what that's just, I just believe it. Like that's just the way I am, you know, and, and not necessarily embracing the possibility of with understanding it or seeing it clearly, it does represent a choice. It does. And the more, the more intense your gravity is, the more aware you are of the choices that you're making. Right. I love that too. Okay. Sorry. No, it's great. It's great. This is, I love that. So this is what you see when someone's starting to be invisible rather than humble. They avoid the spotlight or they stay silent and you'll hear it. You'll see it in their language. They'll start, they'll say things like, well, maybe I'm wrong, but they're not, but they always preface it with that. Now you can go to the other side of that too much confidence. You've probably heard this too. Well, maybe I'm wrong, but, and you go, you just said you weren't. Your words belie your intentions. Right, right. I was going to choose a couple. They self-sideline. They deflect respect. They don't think it's deserved, or if it is deserved, they don't believe they should say, yes, I did it, or I deserve it. And they usually receive praise or give praise with a subtle expectation that they'll get a payback of it. Right, like Dave uses this example personally. His wife will always say, I love you. And if he doesn't return it, she'll say, What's up? Oh, you know, and so that's a that's an invisibility problem. Right. Right. You've lost humility and now you become invisible. And I had a close friend of mine who teaches at a university up in Salt Lake City, and he also teaches high school. And before he knew this strength and counterfeit stuff, he kind of, he called me one day and he was kind of like saying, Hey, I think I'm And this is before we called it gravity because I think I'm doing pretty good with this. And I said, well, what, what's up, Jake? And he said, well, there's this other teacher and she, and there was some idea. I won't go into the details and I don't remember all of them, but she stole an idea of his and presented it as her own. And he said, oh. you know, I was going to say something, but I thought I'll come up with more ideas. Let her have it. And he said, I kind of thought that was a pretty humble thing to do. And I said, no, Jake, it was an invisible thing to do. In fact, it was a, it was a very me-centric thing you did. And he goes, what? <laughs> I said, think about it. You were me-centric in hand letting her take the credit. Because if you were we-centric, you'd go, what's best for the school? Did they know who comes up with these ideas or that they got one idea? Oh, interesting. And so if yeah. you said, actually, that's not true. So now, Jake, let's just say they go on and they promote her. And now she's in charge of ideas. I know I'm just oversimplifying this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they don't don't promote you to be in charge of ideas. What good have you done for the school or the Mm -hmm. students or the district or yourself? So you faded. You actually, that was a selfish thing to do. And he's like, wow, I thought it was humble. (laughs) I'm like, no, no. It's, it was a me-centric thing to do. So then if we go to the beliefs, well, what, did, what would someone kind of suffering from invisibility, just off-center, not paralyzing insecurity, just a momentary l- lack of true humility? Well, applause is toxic. Credit is given, not claimed. 
and everyone deserves equal recognition. So there's no matter what they contributed. Not true. Not true. You can't throw me into Harvard and say, teach Steven Pinker's class. And Steven goes, oh yeah, go ahead, Steve. <laughs> no, he has to say the best, I'm the most qualified person to teach the class on this particular topic. It's right. not ego. I just am. And I'm interested in what's best for Harvard and the students, n- not who's in front of the classroom. So a couple other things. If you have to sell yourself, you're not worth selling. If you're good or great, they'll notice. Mm-hmm. Not true. Another belief. Who am I to say? You know, my opinion isn't worth any more, more important than anybody else's. And pointing out weaknesses or disagreeing is disrespectful. It's even condescending. So if others are wrong, they'll figure it out. Bold is brash and quiet is power. See how the language kind of Chris come, becomes absolute. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's like, I, they have, they have a definition for those things and they're afraid of power because they're afraid it's going to corrupt. So I'll just stay away from power. Can I insert something here, which I, I was uh, lucky to have a gentleman on the show a few months back by the name of Brian Walsh who is the CEO and publisher of Mindful Magazine. I know, Brian. You do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. About like six months ago, Eric Langshire. I know Eric uh, Langshire. You do, yeah. So Eric, some, I don't, this is a series of he knows, she knows, he knows, she knows. Oh my God. And so I talked to Eric and Eric said, you know who might be interested is this guy named Brian Welch. So we spent an hour on the phone. I loved Brian. The end, he goes, you know, your book is honestly brilliant, but I just don't see that it fits with what we're doing. And so that was our, but we got to know each other, talked about our, it was great. Amazing human being. And he went yeah, he a really terrible is terrible situation with his, his son. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We talked the, about that in the show. Some point he made the statement that it clarified that wasn't his statement. It learned it or gotten it from somebody along the way. And the statement was, all certainty, and I may be paraphrasing poorly, but the gist of it is all certainty is aggression. And I'd love, I'd love your sort of gravitational, <laughs> you know, interpretation of that, whether you agree, disagree, just sort of how that how that sits on the on the equilibrium bar of or teeter-totter of. I mean, it blew me away when he said it for like 48 hours. I was rocked by, you know, is that possibly true? If it is true, do I need to present myself as less certain? Yeah, I don't mean mean to throw you off here, Steve. I just. just No, no, no. You're not throwing me off. I I love the question. And it's the method part of me that says certain about what. Oh, Uh, you you are methodical. I am methodical. It's not, it's strength and weakness, but I certain about what, like, I'm, I'm certain that people are worthy of love and consideration. I don't see that as a, an act of aggression. Right. But most of the time, if I'm certain, then I've, I don't know about aggression. I'd have to hear more from Brian about it. But one thing to be sure you've lost curiosity. If you're uh, certain about that. something, yeah, then what? Yeah. Then what, why? Why have a conversation about it? In fact, right. just riffing off that just for a second, let's just think about some of the great people of history and of even of our times. And and this kind of gets into my 
my, let's call it my aggression toward soft skills training libraries that are the size of Ikea, (laughs) like trying to memorize all of these, this vast expanse of techniques and methods and steps. And you go back and go, oh, think about Abraham Lincoln and just not back, but Shirley Chisholm, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Greta Thunberg. I mean, Martin Luther King, I mean, Frederick Douglass, you just on and on and on and on. Did they go through soft skill training? Did they memorize one, (laughs) two, three? And no, it was in them. It came from the gravity of who they were. And so I don't know how a person with intense gravity feels certain about almost anything. Because I think the moment you're certain, then you're, you're, if you're not completely close to listening, you've got a filter on. Yeah. Because you're trying I, I, to, yeah. you're funneling it to your certainty. Yeah. I love that the way you look at that. I mean, it's, it's not dissimilar from the, uh, the anecdote you shared about person allowing the other person to take their idea. What, what I'm getting from the profound work that you have done with Dave is, is this, 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 this sort of discovery of the dimensionality of all this. It's never as purely black and white and as simple as we want it to be. And that I think the idea of a, of a teeter totter or a spectrum that sort of goes up and down, you know, has, is maybe applicable to to all of these things that it's, it's it's never a pure play you know that we have to in a way do the hard work to really understand the context understand the meaning understand the reaction and and that's how you sort of find your way to a a, a more i don't know if effective is the right word but well you're right chris the future gets more contextual all the time life gets more contextual. It's not as simple as it used to be. And so what are the core traits we need to be exactly on center ourselves so that we're not missing context? Right. You know, with whether it's our ingenuity, our bravery, our openness, our sense of equality, humility, curiosity, veracity, whatever those things are, they have to be in their purest form to get context. Because, you know, one of the quotes that I love that you used with in your book of Steve Jobs, and to paraphrase it poorly, he said, a lot of people come to very complicated problems with simple thinking and solutions, and they're wrong. And then they realize how something complicated something is, and they invent something complicated to deal with the complication. He said, but the really great person finds the underlying core principle of it. And then that's what makes a beautiful, elegant solution possible. And so we have so many things politically, economically, ecologically, environmentally that need people to have a, like an intense, deep sense of gravity at their core to figure out the context. Scripts don't work anymore. I would include relationships, you know, know, Kate and I, have been, uh, we've been married for 10 years and we've had a wonderful run, but you know, we have our moments and I think what we're learning, and this is all fairly recent, the last month or two is the complexity of 
of the dynamic. It's they're not problems per se, but you know, really peeling the onion on on how we're communicating, what we're actually saying, what we actually mean by what we're saying. And I'm I'm proud to say we're getting better at at the at the willingness to do the the work of that because it's work, right? It's easier to live at this the veneer level of this stuff. But yeah. I don't know that you you solve it. I mean, it's sort of like climate change. We got to dig into the behavioral roots of it and 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 look at how we how we shift our position on that teeter totter. So I mean, I think it applies to everything, right? Everything. Oh, it does. And relationships are as complex as any environmental question, right? right? There's so there's the context of our personalities, our behaviors, our beliefs, where we were raised, what we, where we're headed, who we've been. I mean, it's, it's complicated, but Can I, I guess say I one would quick thing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Saturday yeah. night we were out and uh, we, we just did an exercise. I said, let's, let's both go through the things we got from our parents that were positives and the things that we got that were negatives. And it was wild, <laughs> you know, and we did it in a really, objective i mean as much as you can be objective about that stuff but it was really clarifying to sort of categorize or inventory how we are through the lens of what we got from these people you know called parents so anyway yeah, let's go wow. back to the thing sorry no i love i love that and if you could have extended that dinner time you're like okay we've emptied our our cartridges on every you know and I don't, I don't, I don't mean gun cartridges. We've emptied our, our boxes of knowledge on what our parents did, taught us, what we gained, what we lost, what we became, what we didn't become. I would say, now let's dig into a box of principles. Yeah. What, what are we, regardless of who taught us what, or what environmentally happened to us culturally, how, what principles are driving us? And it's less, it's not that complicated. It's contextual. There's nuances to be sure, or it'd be just irrelevant and, over, and simplistic rather than simple. But if you dig far enough, you'd say, okay, let's like, I don't want to say who wrote this book or, but there's a, there's a book on, I don't even want to say that. I don't want to disparage anybody. There's a book on talking to each other when it's important. And they produced a video, this is like 10 years ago, and it was intended to be a quick overview of the book and the methodology for talking to each other. And it took 15 minutes. And after three minutes, I was like, how the hell does anybody remember all of this? <laughs> so I asked my nephew and his wife, who are, and they've been married about three years now, and they said, oh, yeah, we read that book. And I said, you like it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a great book, great book. I said, what'd you learn? She turns to him, what did we learn? <laughs> and I said, did you read the whole book? Yeah, yeah. And you liked it. Well, when I say liked it, it was interesting, but I don't remember a lot from it. And so I kind of pulled out what I had written in the book. And I said, look, you guys, let me just ask you a question. What if the two of you were just more curious what could imagine what pure curiosity could fix in your relationship in your marriage not let's not get on the you know 
all of the complexities of the models that they shared and the if, then what, for, who, steps, all that stuff. I just, what if you were genuinely curious, like would the new ideas that you share with each other get more of a chance to breathe before like criticism crushed them? Yes. Or even in, in, in an innovative process, would it get more time? Even when the process says be open, not everybody is. Right. And right. so disagreement would create more questions than pigeonholing and feedback would be more fearless and free, less suspicion, less fear. And misunderstanding would decline because we'd be curious about what they right. were saying. And so you could go on and on and say, what if we just at the deepest part of our soul said, I want to be intensely curious. I don't need a lot of steps. I just need to be obsessively curious about who are you? Where'd you come from? What do you believe? What do you want to do? What do you think? Yeah. And it changes the nature, the nature of who we are as human beings. We can memorize techniques, but you know, again, going back to some of the greatest human beings in history, they just, they had it in them and it was because of what they believed, not because they'd been through a lot of classes on it. Right, 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 right. You know, one thing that strikes me, and I don't want to derail us too much, but um, the idea of curiosity as a, for some people, it fights with the desire, subconscious or not, to make, to put everything in boxes that we can absolutely understand. That 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 people in seeking comfort and security, people want to force everything into these little discrete boxes where the there's the answer inside is either a yes or a no, and that. The problem with unbridled curiosity is, is nothing is in a box. And for some percentage of people, that's a very scary reality. Yeah, what I'll t tell people, Chris, is I'll say, I'm not asking you to throw your boxes away. I'm asking you, number one, how did you fill up the box in the first place? <laughs> okay. And hold your mistake. boxes, but I'm just asking you, are you willing to bring in some new boxes? Right. And maybe shuffle some stuff in the current ones. Right. I'm not asking you to abandon truth. I'm just asking you to ask questions more curiously about how you see the world and what's what's it, the deepest part of you. And how deep is it? How how like have you given up? Like you could and I forget the guy who's is kind of embarrassing. He's from, I think he's from England. He's an educator and Richard Barrett. No, in, is in my book or somewhere else. No, no, no. He's he's given a really famous TED talk, and I used to know his name by heart. And it's been years since I've thought about him, but until this moment. But he basically showed a statistic where if you look at a curve, the inception point and kind of the slope goes down from the time you're like in preschool till the time you leave high school. And you, you just have learned that it's not good to not know. And how dangerous is that? It's not good to not know. And I, we had this discussion with my 12 year old girl the other day, because she's, I mean, this, this, this is kind of digressing for a minute, Chris, but she sure. said our teacher, they were teaching them about how to find the circumference of an area. And her teacher said, you're never going to use this, but let's just learn it. 
And I said, that's not true, sweetheart. Because the, only, the value of learning how to find the circumference of an area, even if you don't use it in your career, do you know that it's exercising part of your brain that will help you do things more creatively that you'll never be able to explain? So, yeah. and I'm more curious, I'm more interested, sweetheart, in, in how curious you are and what you want to learn than I am in what grade you get, because grades are based on the amount of information you can answer correctly, which is true, is important, but it's not the end no. point. It's not the end game of an education. No, I think it's a boxed approach to assessment. It's like, yeah. you know, like, did, did you or memorize all the information in the box. And, then and she it. said, you know, and we were in the conversation just quickly. She, I said, sweetheart, I got stuck in something I was writing yesterday. Absolutely. I want to just put my head through a wall stuck. You know how I got out of it? She goes, you wrote some more. And I said, no, I went to the Khan, Khan Academy and listened to Sal Khan teach how to find the square root of complex numbers. <laughs> And I said, and I failed the first test, and then I got the second one right, and I wrote my answers all out on paper. She goes, you didn't have a calculator? I'm like, no, I wanted to see how it worked. And I said, then I went back, and that working, that part of my brain helped me see what I was writing differently. That's, that's what the point of curiosity and learning is. It's not just to know the answers. It's to exercise parts of your brain that can get you the answers. Right, right. That's great. I'm mindful of time, and I want to I want to talk about the book through the lens of. And and by the way, somebody asked me this about my book, the book I'm writing, which you're kind enough to be reading, a part of it. They asked me, well, "Who is this book for?" And so, when when you and Dave began working on, I am gravity. Did you have a certain kind of person? a certain kind of situation. Yeah, we had, we had undeniably, we had the rising generation of the human race. So we, we had a very detailed description that I did anyway, that hung on my wall. And at the very top of it was Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to be political. It's just, she represented, I mean, she's done a lot for her age and I've watched her communicate in Congress with other congressmen and women. Mm -hmm. And she's a thoughtful, bright, articulate, well-intended politician woman. And so we had this list of, you know, different people, but she reminded me who we were constantly writing to. And who we were trying to get, you know, who, who's young enough that we can set them up the right way for the next 20 or 30 years, because we're in the, you know, Klaus Schwab, who heads the world economic mm -hmm. forum. He said the fourth industrial revolution is underway started in 2016. It's probably going to go for about 25 to 50 years and, it, and it'll be exponential. And we thought, you know, people are that rising generation of people. So our demographic was like 25-ish to mm -hmm. 39. Because if we thought, well, if we write it to the 15, 60-year-olds, I go, man, I wish I would have known that when I was younger. <laughs> and then nothing will change. Um, so we want 
we said like, who, who is the future in the hands of, and it's the rising generation. So that's who we wrote the book to is you've been out of school for a few years up until the time you're about 40. Cause we'd much rather put this in the hands of Senate or Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez or Greta Thunberg, or, you know, you can make a long list, Right. put it in their hands and help them see what gravity does and the power of it rather than, well, I wish I would have had this earlier. So they're yeah. going to shape the future and they're going to have to untangle some wicked problems that we didn't have to. And they're going to have to untangle some of the ones we created for them. Well, and it's so interesting, you know, in, in my book, you haven't gotten to this part because I haven't sent it to you, but I'm working on the quote unquote framework for a solution on how we deal with the existential threats, how we deal with getting, getting back in the, in the, in the driver's seat of technology, how do we deal with the divisions, you know, all the, all the stuff that's sort of swimming around us. And um, what I call for, and it may not be the right words, but I, what I call for is, is, is a silent revolution of sorts. So the idea is it's not going to, we're not going to solve all this on the back of governments for a variety of reasons. And so what we need is the next generation of leaders to have the, this conviction and the capacities, including gravity, to be able to lead from from other corners of of society. You know, it's not again the solution is not going to come from the leadership of governments. And so it's just interesting to sort of combine what I'm trying to say with what you're trying to to do with the book as as a as a path for for the future. Yeah. One of the, in fact, you say revolution, Chris, and one of the lines from the book is revolutionary times need revolutionary humans. There you go. (laughs) There you go. Right. I mean, (laughs) and I mean that not just in, not just that, you know, not just people who are willing to be revolutionary, but to be revolutionary in terms of their behavior. Right. And the gravity of who they are. Yeah. Can you write the the final chapter? Cause it's all about behavior. <laughs> Why don't we just make the final chapter of gravity? And then we've got a 140,000 word. Book. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, but, but It'll let me, be six uh, inches wide on the shelf. Let me, let me close with, so, so for the audience, because I get a lot of, a lot of people reaching out to me after the show saying, you know, how can I get in touch with Steve or how can I take advantage of, what your guest had to say. So the book one day will be available. So that's a, a wonderful thing that the, the economics is available. It's on Amazon, I assume, right? Is that, is that? Yeah. And I would, here's the deal, Chris, economics was, I'm going to give like a 30 second speech about economics. We were onto something big. We, we had never written a book before. So we took it to a friend of ours who was an agent. They sent it to Simon and Schuster. They said, this is a really big idea. How long will it take you to write it? And we said, probably three years. And they said, how about five and a half months? <laughs> and, and we said, well, now when it's Simon and Schuster and we were younger at the time, our first book, we thought they got to know, right? Like you don't go to Pixar and go, I think my, my movie is going to take this long. If they tell you it's going to take longer or, sh- or shorter, you just say, okay. And that's kind of how we thought about them. So. I wrote for five and a half months straight and it was good. I'd give it a B minus, but there's a reason this one took 10 years of research and four years to write. So if someone wants to, there's two things, if they want to learn more, first of all, if they've listened to your podcast and they want the book, 
I'll send them the manuscript. Wow. So they don't have to wait because, you know, publishing, even if we found a publisher tomorrow morning, we said, we're going to go with Random House. Okay. It'll be out in a year. That's just how, you know, and you run a publishing company, so you know how that works. So that's about right. And so I don't want them to wait. So if they want it, I'll send the manuscript to them. It's fully edited. The book's done. So I would do that. And then they can learn more about just going to imgravity.com. Okay. And, and can they reach you via the, the website? Presumably they can, they can contact you. Yeah. On. There's a, there's a contact us thing there. Um, Is the course, I get a lot of, we have a lot of listeners who are leaders of organizations, all different shapes and sizes. Is yeah. the course that you did, the kind of coursework you did with Microsoft and Lockheed, is that still a possibility? Yeah, yeah, we do it. In fact, we just taught, oh, I remember the, who was it? <laughs> this is like two months ago. Anyway, we just taught the leadership team of massive international hotel chain. And I have no idea why that name escapes no, me at okay. the moment. Okay, so you're but, still yeah, doing that so work. We still do that work. Yeah, it's still a two-day course and based on all the work we've done in gravity. By the, by the way, just for the audience, I uh, I don't know if people know this, but I do a bit of CEO advising on organizational transformation fueled by the fourth industrial revolution, which Steve was just talking about. And what I'm seeing across industries is a recognition that digital transformation is a really organizational transformation, which really is human transformation. And that to be successful at it, it's it's a decoding, recoding thing, which Steve and his partner do really, really well, because ultimately it's getting to that set of behaviors fueled by a set of beliefs. Don't change the beliefs, you won't change the behaviors, and you won't get to the kind of outcome that you're after. So it's just a long-winded way of saying, I think this work that Steve has done is is truly seminal and I think so, so, so relevant to what society at large is dealing with. Like getting getting to a place of greater gravity, particularly for the next generation of leaders and greater understanding of self and greater understanding of others and greater ability to navigate to a place that benefits not us, but all is the key is the key to a, to a better future for more people. So I just, I love you very much, man. You're, you're, you're a gift to me. You know, we've never met by the way, to the audience, we've never met. And I no, hope no. the guy we meet soon, but yeah, uh, I feel the same way, Chris, you're just a phenomenal human well, being. And it's a, you know, I'm lucky to, to know you. Likewise, likewise. So I will let you go on that note and I'm sure we'll talk real soon, but just again, thank you for being you and thank you for the, the amazing work that you've done putting a spotlight on what I believe is the most important aspect of being human there is. Thanks, Chris. We'll do it again. Ciao. Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.